Coaching Inside the Box. A youth soccer coaching podcast. A Brit, a Brazilian, and an American discuss culture and environment and the impact it has on youth development. Can you coach inside the box? Hello and welcome back to the oldest and greatest podcast in youth soccer coaching history, Coaching Inside the Box with episode 50, 50 episodes old. Philippe and Andy, Andy, you've got to be just, we're getting closer to your age. I think when we eclipse the episode number that is Andy's age, we should throw like a birthday party or something. We already reached the number of presidents that Andy has seen. 50 <laughs> right i i can no longer count to 50 we don't ha- we've never had 50 presidents fleet <laughs> oh really no you're gonna you're gonna need to know that when you do your citizens citizenship how test, many I'm certain. how many uh we're at 46 right now oh because some guys went two terms right sure andy got it welcome to coach inside the box episode 50 50 episodes Old, I know that you um, would like to do the intro today, um, and so I don't. I've got jokes aplenty, but I don't want to steal your thunder. But we're well, talking you about. Think a, I'd like to do the intro today. Well, because you sent us a message last night that said so. But this is going to be a really good episode, a fantastic episode. We're going to talk about the impact that Hubert Huberty Huberty Puberty has on youth soccer, youth development, um, both positively and negatively. Um, and Andy. Well, you know, I, I, I wanted to talk about the crazy fact that it has nothing to do with puberty that we encounter in, you know, American soccer society. I encountered in British soccer society growing up, you know, and I think everybody accepts that there's, there's six major basic skills of the game, right? And, you know, what are they? You know, passing, passing drib- one. dribbling, shooting. Three. Um, Receiving. Receiving. Four. Defending. Tackling. Tackling. There you go. Yep. Heading. Five, six. six. Yep. There we go. And so you've got heading, which is now under attack. You know, it's a big question mark on heading because of, you know, you know, all of the medical problems, you know, CTE, the risk to, you know, as you get older, you know, forgetting things. What am I doing here? <laughs> um, you know, just, you know, the, the, you know, that stuff is serious, you know, and sure. has an impact on life. And, you know, I'm being facetious, but, uh, you know, this has impacted, you know, especially the Charlton family. You know, Bobby and Jack Charlton, you know, have both been diagnosed as CTE sufferers. And Bobby wasn't even, you know, a massive header of the ball. Jack was as a center back, you know, and suffered seriously during the last years of his life from problems with CT. You know, Bobby suffered, but didn't head the ball anything like as much as Jack, but still suffered with, you know, with CT. So, you know, and we've got lots of the old English superstars, you know, through the years, you know, have now been diagnosed with CT, suffering from CT, or have died because of CT. You know, and, you know, it's becoming a bigger and bigger problem we're finding, you know, as, as we research the players that have suffered you know, and in their later years had a much lower quality of life because of the CTE brought on by the game. So now you're down to, you know, five skills, you know, and, um, you know, we've got this amazing skill, you know, deceptive dribbling, 
that for some reason where I grew up was almost never taught. You know, nobody ever showed me a move. None of my coaches, you know, when I was a kid, showed me a move. You know, they taught me passing and receiving till the cows come home. You know, we did an occasional, occasional shooting drill, which is crazy because that's the skill that wins games. You know, and, you know, a lot of tackling stuff. You know, it was big. You know, tackling people was big. You know, fouling people was pretty big in those days. You <laughs> so know, there's a seventh a skill game. learned by Andy growing up how to foul somebody. You know, it, it, that was part how of the How does light tackle knee height? <laughs> knee height? You didn't get on the field if you're only prepared to go knee height. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, but, you know, deceptive dribbling was not on the menu. You know, I never, ever once was taught when I was a kid how to do a move. The first move I ever learned how to do was the Cruyff turn because, you know, I saw Johan Cruyff do it against Sweden, you know, in a World Cup. And I thought, I've got to watch this and I've got to learn how to do it. You know, and so, you know, I got access to, you know, um, a, a tape that, that showed this again and again and again, you know, and, you know, I learned how to do it. And I started coaching when I was 16 and I taught my kids how to do the Cruyff turn as best I understood it without ever having been taught the move myself. And so we, we've got this out there, um, almost banished, you know, like it's some type of a nasty disease, you know, we're, we're a bunch of lepers, you know, and, you know, we're, you know, we're all in this community that runs around, you know, swinging bells, shouting unclean, unclean, you know, so that people don't catch this horrible disease we've got, you know, of deceptive dribbling. You know, Brazilians, they've got it worse than anybody. You know, they're the worst lepers in the world because they've got this horrible disease that has caused them to win five World Cups. It's, it's just crazy. You know, now, of course, the rest of the world is trying to play catch-up, and there's some elements within societies, soccer societies, in these other countries like England, like Scotland, Northern Ireland, Wales, the countries I'm most familiar with because, you know, that's where all the great players in Division One came from when I was a kid. And, you know, these players, you know, didn't have those deceptive dribbling skills, and now the English players are getting a smattering of, of these deceptive dribbling skills. And so we come to the World Cup and the USA, which had nobody except for Rose Lavelle that even looked deceptive at this World Cup. Even Megan Rapino, who was deceptive at the last World Cup, I watched in person in Paris during some of their games in the last World Cup, you know, who used to be a deceptive dribbler, didn't even try to use a move in this World Cup. Maybe she's getting a little older, a little slower, and she realizes she doesn't have the explosive speed to leverage her moves like she did four years ago. You know, but you know, aside from Rose, there was nobody on the American team that looked as though they were able to beat a player in the one-on-one -on -one using deceptive dribbling. So it was pure speed and cuts that they used in the one-on-one. -on -one. And so you've got England, which is a, you know, is a better version of the US these days, you know, and a few players that have got a reasonable amount of creativity, but nothing really, really special. And then you come to Spain. And they had a bunch of players that were really creative on the ball. Nowhere near as much as I would like, but they were the most creative team consistently across the board in the World Cup. So is it any surprise that they won the World Cup and deserved to win the World Cup? Well, no, 
because they are incredibly good with the ball at their feet. Deceptive and, you know, brave. You know, willing to take a risk, willing to go for it, willing to go out on the ragged edge and say, you know, I am not going to conform to society's viewpoint of me as an underling anymore. I'm not, you know, a, a woman in the traditional sense that buckles down and knuckles under to the powers that be. And we're seeing this play out now in Spanish politics, you know, within the soccer world in Spain, where the president of the, you know, the Spanish FA has been accused of assaulting physically one of the, the women on the team, you know, and it's becoming a, a worldwide incident, you know, and, you know, this is maybe the moment when Spain grows up, you know, when women come into their power and they are finally treated as equals within that society to a much greater degree than has ever occurred in, you know, maybe obviously their society, but, you know, any society in the world, you know, and, you know, this, you know, translates to, you know, let's go for it. Let's be brave. Let's be creative. Let's be out there on the ragged edge. You know, let's not worry about what people are going to think about us. Let's live lives without hurting others as we believe life should be lived. You know, and soccer is a microcosm of life. And what I'm seeing these days is gradually women are coming into their own but it's not yet happening to the degree that I would like to see it happen in youth soccer. Girls are not socialized to be brave and creative, take people on, you know, hang out on the ragged edge, you know, and say, look at me, I can beat three players and score an incredible goal from 25 yards, you know, a la Leo Messi, you know, a la Cristiano Ronaldo, you know, who are still doing it in their late 30s, you know, for Al Nasser in, you know, the Saudi League and obviously Messi over here in the, in the you know, in the, in the American professional leagues, you know, and, and, and doing a massive job of promoting the game to populations that haven't had the opportunity to see players of that quality up until right now. And it's fantastic to watch. The, uh, you, you talk about, you talk about that the difference... I don't know that you're pointing out the difference between coaches coaching girls and, and boys, but having coached both and currently coaching both, the difference is from a legend's perspective in terms of just being able to 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 get the kids to take risks and go for it and stand out and be selfish um, is 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 pretty significant. So for those coaches here looking to to buy in and try some of the stuff with the teams that you coach, if you're coaching on the girls' side, you've, it, it takes a, a, an extra level of of enthusiasm, of, of focus, of, of direction, typically, in my experience, to get the girls to really go for it and to really be selfish and be creative on the ball. Um, and, and as we've talked about in numerous podcast episodes before, um, the being selfish on the front end with the ball is, is paramount to becoming a deceptive dribbling uh, maestro, something that's truly creative as a team player later on in the game. Um, when Andy talks about deceptive dribbling, I think it's something that it's of vital importance uh, on any podcast that we talk about because it's what actually makes the game, in my opinion, super beautiful, super entertaining as well. Um, and you see at the highest level throughout history, you know, you have one or two teams that may be defended, defended, defended and upset somebody that was better. But the teams that mostly 
win those big events, the teams that even if they don't win, you know, you have Holland of 1974, Brazil of 82, and, you know, there are other examples in history. Those are the teams that are talked about. So the deceptive dribbling is something that cannot die uh, in a game. And just to relate to the topic today, I think puberty is a big enemy of deceptive dribbling uh, in both ends. And what I mean by that kids that start getting a physical advantage too early, they might rely a lot on their physical advantage because they don't really need the skills to necessarily beat a defender. So they start getting by with not doing as much when other kids catch up, they're in trouble. On the flip side, kids that don't have that physical advantage, even when they're super skillful, they might get discouraged because they don't have the explosion, the physical um, condition of after doing a move, keep exploding, keep dribbling the ball, and keep doing things so they start hurting in their confidence. So it's a very important job for the coach to make sure on both ends, the kid that has the advantage and the kid that doesn't, they both understand that it's a process, it's a period of their growth and their development as a player and as a human being, and they need to make sure they're focusing on the mission, the journey, the marathon, what they need to get better at for them to reach at the highest level so i think when we discuss deceptive dribbling and we discuss puberty i think we need to mention on how can we help those kids to overcome either side of the spectrum yeah so for, for me as a coach i to, to to lump it into four giant categories of the coaching that i've done for all of the youth age groups uh, you know there's there's category one which is for us happy feet right which is all about you know fun and connecting the kids to a lot of touches and helping them fall in love with the ball at their feet and then there's the the skill building uh, skill confidence building phase right and for me that's that's yeah i don't know six seven through like 10, 11 um, uh, or so uh, years old, right? And then there's this, this, this squishy middle section, which is what we're going to talk about today, which is where, the pu- where puberty starts to hit for kids at all different rates, right? But it's, um, it's that, you know, that 12 to 15 or so range, that squishy middle. Um, I've got currently one team in that section. Uh, we'll talk about that entirely the episode and then I think there's the end too like the kind of the capstone to the to the youth soccer uh, a bit which is uh, I also have a 2007 girls team in that group as well um, and so but today we're going to talk about this squishy middle this 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 puberty section this I identify as kind of a, a 12-ish through 15-ish age group and I want to start with a quick story from my practice last night uh, before we really really dig in um, so I've got a kid that has played for me um, gosh since he was probably seven or eight long time um, he's now 13 years old. Um, Xander is his name. And he came up to me at the end of practice. And she goes, coach, I think I got hit in the face. I have a, I have a bruise or something on my cheek. And I was like, what do you mean? He goes, I, I keep touching it right here and it hurts. And I go, Xander, that's not a bruise. That's a pimple. And he goes, he goes, oh, I hate going through all this. And I thought <laughs> me too, man, me too. And, and I say that, like I joke, like, you know, sometimes you, when you have something difficult or uncomfortable or weird, you just got to own it. But coaching this middle, squishy middle section that is that is um, the puberty section of, 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 of youth soccer, youth development, is a difficult time to coach, right, for so many reasons. And I think a lot of the listeners will connect connect with it you know you've got um you've got kids hitting puberty at entirely different times right there are some kids with full beards um and leg muscles the size of uh you know a full-grown man playing against kids like my own current about to be 13 year old next week
weak um, uh, son who, who, I mean, he could pass as an eight-year-old still, if we're being honest. And so um, I don't think he'll listen to this podcast and hear that comment, but at least hopefully not. Um, uh, but and no, so Don't forget the girls, because I've yet to see a girl that had a full beard. <laughs> Give it time, Andy. Maybe you just haven't coached long enough. Um, but So you've got that challenge, but then in addition to that, right, you're full bearded uh, 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 male or you're a female that has gone through puberty entirely. Now we're playing 11 v 11. And, and at least I remember back in the day when I was a kid, the, we, we always put on grass, right? At terrible fields. And because of that, it felt like the U13, U14, or not when I was a kid, everybody played 11 v 11. When I first started coaching, U13, U14 teams played on like a smaller version. They would, they, would, they would line the field a little bit more narrow and a little bit shorter to actually match the size of the kids on the field. But now we play, you know, it's, it's turf, so everything's lined all the time. And this giant 11 v 11 field that gives this, from a win-loss perspective, massive benefit to the, to the early mature who can outrun everybody twice, uh, two times over. It gives them, they have all the space that they can run into and it, and it, and it plays down the value of technique or good solid um, uh, uh, soccer, right? Um, but then to compound all of that even more, we've got this dawning of tactical awareness, right? And so in 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 soccer circles, it's usually like around twelve where you you start to hear coaching educators talk about, okay, now they can start to understand the tactics behind the game, and so let's really invest time into training the tactics behind the game, and that is a challenge for us, I think, as legends coaches who are not focused on the tactics side of the game um, uh, at all, especially in those age groups, um, we're coming up against teams that are that are in theory running, you know, they're, they're big, strong, fast kids in a tactical way um, that makes it even more difficult for us on these big fields to find success. And so this squishy middle section, I, I agree with Xander and him saying, man, I hate going through this stuff. And I kind of do too, if I'm being completely honest as a coach. Yeah, I mean, I, I recently went through this experience with my 2009 boys. They're U15 now, so about... You're on the backside of it. Yeah, so they're, they're, some of them are still not going through puberty. They're still, like, in the low, low, low end. Like, they haven't... You can tell, like, their feet, they are size 12, and their parents are six foot four, and they're the shortest kids on the team, you know? So you, you can tell they're, they're still going to grow. So we have some of them. We have some that are, you can tell. They look older than me. You know, they look as old as me. Uh, Which isn't dif- difficult when Philippe's freshly <laughs> shaven. He's got that baby face, Andy. Yeah, but anyway. He's thinking the same thing. He's very young looking for a 45-year-old, isn't he? <laughs> I'm just 30. I just have the experience of a 45-year-old. And knowledge. <laughs> just kidding anyway but it's it, it's ve- it was very interesting the first year now they're going into their third year of 11 v 11 and I'll, I'll be honest with you the first year of 11 v 11 I thought it was horrible I thought it was a horrible experience I thought it was it's way too early for the kids to go play on that big of a field exactly for the reasons you said that so, most of the teams they they're what the big thing is how to play out of the back. So, like, goal kick is the most important part of the game. They set up, like, a structured way to complete, like, three sequence passes. And then what they do? Boom. Bang along. What do they have up top? The big, fast kids and tons of space. So, the game that first year was 
unbelievably direct. I mean, there was an unbelievable amount of space on the field because the kids are so small. And then you have the one, two, three kids on the team that are already in that process of growing and they already have the legs to kick from one end to the field to the other. And like it, the coaches that exploit that, it just makes the game really hard for the team that is playing. For example, when I went to play the first the first uh, spring season that we went and played the National League Midwest Conference, top division, best teams in the Midwest. Um, it was really tough because my team, I could tell just by the lineup because they line up just like a professional team, you know, go walk, do the walkthrough. Just by the lineup, I would look and like, oh boy, I'm in trouble. <laughs> like my kids were like a head smaller sometimes and I was like, it's, it's going to be ugly. And, you know, we, we hung and all the games we, we were competitive, you know, got a win here and there. But, like, the first season we struggled because our teams were just too big, too physical and exploiting that. And my boys were kind of still trying to figure out how to deal with that. But after that one season and my boys caught up a little bit, you know, I remember playing a Chicago team in that spring and their striker was taller than all the boys on my team and had a full mustache. And then we played them the next fall. He was the same size as most of my kids. So, like, that kid was kind of done already at 13. And all my boys, you know, caught up. So, then when they start adjusting to that, I mean, they just start doing really well. So, we had a fantastic season last year. But it was the boys that I had that had a a little bit of physical advantage. I tried to put them in situations and in positions that they couldn't exploit that that much Mm -hmm. right and on the flip side the boys that don't have that I still let them do what they had to do on the field right and I still gave them the confidence and I said listen you I still want you to do the skill to to create space you're probably not going to be able to carry the ball for another 20 yards because the other bigger kids will catch up so you got to do the skill create the space combine with somebody and get it back in a better position and stuff like that or take shots and you know a lot of times the kids wouldn't have the legs to shoot from far, but the shot will clear up and they would shoot. I would never tell the kid, hey, don't shoot from there. You don't have, you're never going to score from there right now. Well, it doesn't matter. He's not going to score from there right now. He's going to score in six months. So he needs to be taking that shot to get. So it's just the, the training needs to be, the coaching needs to focus on what's the best thing for the kid and not what's the best thing for that game specifically. So, so you know, if I may, let me read something that I prepared for this. Um, the prevailing belief in the soccer coaching community is that players should do most of their technical development before age 12, after which they should switch into the tactical learning phases of the game. This clearly makes no sense because all new muscle and nerve tissues must be trained to perform the complicated technical skills inherent to the sport. Up till this point, only 50% of the mature male body and 60% of the mature female body has been trained. Focusing on tactics or on top-up technique for what a player already knows completely neglects the new untrained tissue that the body is creating. Furthermore, the pre-trained tissue must work harder to control and move the untrained flesh and bone. This is why most players look clumsy during their growth spurt, and when compared to their prepubescent technical skill and speed, their performance appears extremely awkward. 
Laura Stam of Laura Stam Power Skating and Dr. Jack Blatherwick, PhD physiologist, Washington Capitals hockey team, say this. Body changes during the adolescent growth spurt, AGS, can temporarily diminish a player's overall skill and speed and increase vulnerability to injuries. The effects of the AGS and its effects on core strength, postural control and performance, coordination, skill, speed, quickness, agility and technique can be enormous while athletes struggle to adjust to their rapidly changing bodies. All these considerations combined with normal adolescent hormonal and emotional changes can lead to lack of self-confidence and low self-esteem. Adolescents need to be assured that they will regain their technical control and skills when the AGS has ended. The adolescent soccer player in the fast-paced growth spurt is coping with rapid changes in her world and may also experience psychological issues. The combined pressures of dramatic hormone fluctuations and a perceived decrease in ability can make this an emotionally challenging time. Unless she is well-informed, she is likely to feel a loss of confidence in her ability and a corresponding decrease in self-esteem, compounded by being unable to perform at a level that was previously taken taken for granted. This in turn can be perceived as a loss of talent, especially when fellow players appear to be improving. The source for this incidentally was from an incredible, you know, it's a really, really incredible, credible source. You. It was my second book. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and I'm not really joking. <laughs> So, but we're dealing with a real issue here. Sure. But the problem is, very few people actually deal with this issue. Exactly. They take advantage of the issue. They yeah. see a kid that has the advantage and they will exploit that instead of make sure that kid is actually doing more skill work, doing more technical work. Because if they were super skillful until that point and at that point they start getting clumsy, they're naturally going to stop doing it. If you let them stop doing, then after puberty, they're just going to be a bland, basic player. Yeah, I mean, it it all boils down to the point of why we're doing this whole thing, right? Like, and and from that perspective, it's the point. If the point is to win now, then 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 taking advantage of that makes sense. If the point is to win in the long term, and I don't even even necessarily mean win the games. I mean develop the players to be the best possible players that they can be. It's a different story. Andy, you told us told me a story several several years ago, um, and I'm going to tell your story because I know if I try to to prompt it without having told you before, you won't remember it. So here goes, Jason Cole came and played for you at some point uh, during his adolescence, right? Um, and you told a story that Jason was, my memory of the story was that Jason was so athletic and so fast that he could get away with almost anything. And his previous teams that he'd played for before you, meaning he could outrun people, he could create space, just sheer power and speed um, and score goals. And you created, I think you referred to it as like the Jason Cole rule when he first started playing for you. And Jason could not pass. It was against the rules for Jason to pass. And he had to dribble. And it was against the rules for him to score without using skill along his path towards scoring. Um, I assume that uh, in that moment when you made that Jason rule, it actually made it more difficult for you and your team in the short term to find as much success on the field as they could. Jason went on to play at St. Louis University, I think was a Herman Trophy finalist, if my memory serves, and went on to play in the MLS. 
I think it's fair to say that Jason may have not ascended that far in the game had we not, had you not, uh, implemented the Jason Cole rule that forced him to do something more difficult that handicapped your team um, in an effort to have a long-term win for Jason as an individual. It, It was really interesting because I had a team meeting with all the kids and all of the parents you know, when Jason joined us, you know, this is, you know, after the, you know, the, the tryouts are over and, you know, we're, we're just getting situated for the next season. And I never got rid of my players at tryouts. So we had all of the players that wanted to continue playing, you know, plus Jason and another player, Bobby Ewan, who were both, you know, big, fast, strong kids, you know. And, you know, and I, I made the point to the parents that, um, you know, with these players they're going to be treated differently to your kids you know and i'd had most of these other players for years they'd had the benefit of me teaching them how to do a marathon turn teaching me how to teaching them how to do a Cruyff turn you know you know a, a puskus you know and so these kids you know could use all of these skills under pressure create space beat people you know and you know had a much different quality to a jason or a bobby you know so I said to the parents on this team, you know, and it was with a special reference to Jason because he was a forward. Bobby was a defender, but I gave Bobby the same license, which was, you know, take people on like crazy, you know, on this team. You know, with Jason, I actually said, you are not allowed to do anything but dribble and score. You know, because he was an out-and-out centre striker and he'd played on teams. They just banged the ball along and Jason was so fast he'd break away and he'd score goal after goal after goal, tactical goals, that he wouldn't score when he was 18 because the defender would just, you know, warn the defence and somebody would drop off and they'd provide that cover against the long ball. But when he was, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, you know, you can bang the ball over the top to Jason and it was odds on that he was going to beat the defender by five yards to the ball because he was that fast, you know, and, you know, a lot of goals he would miss, but, you know, he'd, he'd score three a game because he could toe poke it into the back of the net. But even his shooting technique wasn't that good. You know, and so, you know, we dedicated ourselves to teaching him the moves, to working on his finishing technique. And the rest is history. And, you know, Jason went on to play at the professional level, had a great college career. And Bobby went on and, and played D1 for four years at Eastern Illinois University, you know, and, you know, because he, he added to his physical abilities with tremendous ability to come out of the back and beat people and score goals and, and do, you know, tremendously creative things. But as I was talking to the parents, you know, you could see in their eyes that some of them were really doubtful about this you know, this kid isn't going to pass your kid rule that I just established because they had had the advantage of being trained to be deceptive dribblers and goal scorers. And these two new players coming in to replace a couple of kids that had moved on for whatever reason from the team, you know, didn't have that skill. And we needed to give those kids that skill. So, you know, it was really interesting because, you know, you give the ball to Jason and a lot of kids would actually stand around with their hands on their hips and just watch him take on six people. You know, and when he started doing it, he'd lose the ball pretty quickly. But after a few months, you know, he was starting to beat people and score goals. And a year later, you know, he was regularly beating two or three defenders because he had incredible speed on the explosion from a move, you know, and regularly scoring hatfuls of goals. You know, so it paid off in spades, mostly for Jason, but also down the road and relatively quickly because he was such a good athlete for the team in terms of team wins. 
And there's two case studies I wanted to bring up today. Jason was one of them who was exceptional from an athletic perspective, went on and, and, and succeeded. And so you kind of, through that puberty phase, had to take an opposite approach to like put, you know, make it more difficult for him if he's truly going to benefit um, and develop through that phase. The other player that I wanted to, case study I wanted to mention was Corey Farabi. Corey played on my Legends team growing up. I think I joined the team at age seven. Corey was already on the team, right? So Corey had been on the team from a young, young age um, and played all the way through with me until we were, you know, through our senior year in high school. Corey also went on to play professionally, uh, was drafted by the Kansas City Wizards, now sporting KC. Um, uh, But Corey was a tiny guy. I mean, just tiny until probably his senior year um, when he got in the weight room, but also hit puberty, right? He was probably late mature from that perspective. And Corey is an example of on a, another team that was, you know, a regional, a regional strength, a, you know, national uh, conversation team that our club team was. On another team, they would have found somebody bigger, stronger, and faster than Corey through those puberty years and replaced him simply. And we didn't. We don't. That's not our, our, our approach to, to the game because that's a short-term approach, not a long-term approach. Um, but we, Corey grinded away. He was, he was f- exceptional with the ball at his feet. And puberty, because he stuck with it and went through some lumps, actually probably paid him off better than it paid me off because I was always, um, I was in a late, er, late or early. I was right in the middle. And I think maybe Corey being a late mature actually benefited him and in the long run raised his ceiling and allowed him to play at a higher level than, than me or most of, of, of the club teammates that I had growing up. I think that is, it really depends on the situation. There are researchers that show that like it's a crazy amount. It's like uh, 70 plus percent of the high level professional athletes are born in the first three months of the year. Sure, because I think everybody focuses on winning. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Correct. <laughs> yeah. But, but I'm with you. When a kid that is well developed and they develop late they are able to compete and at a speed and an intensity that their body is not used to it but then they become better they become faster thinking and like they just when they catch up it becomes easy that a little bit that happened a little bit with me like I'm five, seven and a half. When you're sure, you count the half. half. Yeah, when you're sure, you count the half. But five uh, eight, right? I used to say uh, when I was when I used to play soccer, I used to put on the DVD. The time was DVD, right? I used to put five eight, obviously. But everybody lies a little. They're half an inch in in soccer. Uh, but yeah, five seven and a half. But like at sixteen, I was five two. And I was like 120 pounds. I was really, really short, 15, 16. And then I started to to grow. I thought I was going to grow a little more. But, you know, my dad and mom are really short. So I'm already the tallest person in my family. So It's, it's the Malcolm Gladwell, David versus Goliath concept. I don't know, Philippe, if you've read yeah. the book. I know Andy has. But it's this whole concept that David actually had an inherent advantage. And when we as coaches approach puberty and that squishy middle section of 12 to 15 in the right way, the 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 smaller, weaker, later maturing players can have the the the, the David versus Goliath advantage, if that makes sense. Yeah. The, the, the thing with me that I remember vividly is what when I was like 12, 13, all of a sudden kids that I used to play with and I thought were crap, they were better than me. Like they weren't actually better, 
but when I was looking as a kid and they were scoring more goals and being way more impactful and I was losing the balls all, all the time, that really hurt my confidence. And again, I was just playing street soccer, so I didn't have a coach giving me the confidence and explaining me what was going on and all that. So in my eyes, I, I just got frustrated and all I did was go train by myself. In my case, I did a lot of juggling and shooting against the wall, which the shooting really helps, but the juggling... Not as much as if I was working on other stuff as we talked about. But, like, I legit, I would get pissed off because I was seeing kids that were way worse than me. All of a sudden, they were way more impactful. I couldn't beat them, you know, when I was playing against them. And I, I just got angry. And I, that made me hungry. So that gave me a boost on my training, on my dedication that I thought it was really good for me. Just obviously wasn't done the most efficient way. Um, but yeah, if, if I could have taken a, a different approach and just got discouraged, and I did get discouraged at times. There were times that I, you know, didn't play as much soccer, start doing other things and stuff. But soccer was always in the back of my mind, so I got back to it. Therein so, lies the difference between you and I. You get hungry and you go train harder. I just go make myself a double cheeseburger. <laughs> so, so I, I wanted to, you know, tell a Corey Farabi story. Okay, and uh, you know, you know, Corey, you know, little guy, you know, um, you know, it was was in, in many ways. I think while he was, you know, um, smaller than the rest of the team, was was struggling for a little bit of, um, you know, something to hang his hat on. You know, self concept. You know, and I remember we were running a practice upstairs on the practice field one day, and and I think I got called to the front desk with a with a phone call, and and so I left the field. You know, the kids were playing, and uh, this was probably during puberty too. Yeah, and, and, and and you know, while I was away from the field, um, you know, something happened, and you know, and and I returned to the field, and and you know, the atmosphere had changed, and the kids were sniggering, and you know, and so, you know, and you know, and so. You know, I knew something was wrong. And, I, and I, so I said to the kids, I said, you know, what happened while I was away? You know, and, you know, I exerted a bit of pressure. And one of the kids told on Corey and Corey had snuck behind the field because there was a, 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 a space that went nowhere, you know, where there was an opening behind one of the goals into that space behind the boards as it as the boards curved around at the end of the field. And, and Corey had gone behind the field as others had done before him and taken a pee. Not you know, the pee part. He was the first peer. You know, others had done it before him. Oh, but, really? But, you know, not on our team, okay. you know, on, on other teams, you know. And, and so Corey had, you know, gone behind the field. And instead of going to the bathroom, was literally, tw- you know, like 10 yards away, you know, on the mezzanine All-American Indoor Sports. Corey decided he was just going to go behind the field and pee there. And, you know, and, you know, I think this, maybe this was part of the... You know, the fact that he was less mature and he was trying to show off and impress the other kids a bit or whatever. But anyway, I, I soon got to the bottom of this and, and one of the other kids, you know, uh, welched on Corey and told the truth. I think that was you, Andrew. Probably, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, um, so I, you know, and I used to run the facility. You know, and so I knew where all the cleaning supplies were and they never kept that door locked to the closet. So I went and prepared a whole bucket of water and, and got the, the mops and the rest of it. And Corey spent the rest of the practice cleaning up his as well as I think other people's <laughs> pee from behind the field where they decided to you know treat it as a, as a bathroom. That puberty you know. stage could be real interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so, actually, when his, when his parents came to get him, you know, he was 
visibly upset you know he'd shed a few <laughs> tears <laughs> you know during that process you know and so you know i pulled them aside and i said hey this is what happened you know and they were lovely people janelle and steve were lovely people and they said andy we fully support you in making him a good citizen <laughs> so you know and some parents i think maybe wouldn't have supported me you know make do it you know doing that to their kid you know but you know that's what i would have done to my own kid and so i treated you know Corey as my own child and uh, and so um, you know, and Corey's never forgotten about it. I've never forgotten about it. We've laughed about it a bunch of times since, you know, but at the time, I think he was that, you know, younger, less mature, you know, not yet reached his growth spurt phase and wanted to do something to impress his teammates. And so he chose something that was fairly disgusting. <laughs> Boy, were we impressed. <laughs> but but I would, I'd like to examine the teenage conundrum more closely. Um, at the crucial moment when the growth spurt begins, we have one, a body that's adding pounds of untrained tissue each month. And two, virtually all teams, if they have been working on more of a skill-based approach prior to that period of time, they're switching now to a team tactical training mode that does very little to train the new tissue to do what the pre-growth spurt body could do. Due to the combination of longer levers, growing bones, extra untrained tissue, dead weight, and the wrong coaching emphasis, little creative training of the new tissue, dribbling moves and shots that were successful before the growth spurt now fail. Now, players who could previously perform these risky skills with great success lose confidence and embrace the safer passing route to avoid ridicule or save face. To make things worse, this loss of previous physical prowess occurs in the confusing phase of transitioning from a child to adult. This is a time when peer pressure to pass is more keenly felt than ever before. Consequently, there is a greater likelihood that teenage players will abandon the moves for the simpler and less publicly embarrassing passing option. Worse still, struggling teens may completely abandon soccer, a game at which they were once outstanding for the alternative temptations of the teenage years. And without going into those alternative temptations, we all know what they are, right? So... It's a very, very dangerous time for children. You know, there are demons lurking outside of the sporting environment that can take them away from living a good life because their self-concept goes into the, into the toilet during these growth spurt years when they cannot do what they previously could do and they don't feel as accomplished. They don't feel as valuable. Uh, the role of the coach and the teacher, I think, plays can, can play such an important piece during during those years. But as I as I was kind of mentioning before, that that squishy middle you know season from a coaching perspective requires extra enthusiasm and, and attention to detail to ensure that 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 kids are from a soccer perspective, able to develop at the rate that they need to, but then also um, from a self-concept perspective can, um, can, can stay on the straight and narrow and, and, and grow in self-concept concept long-term instead of, instead of regress. Let's, let's talk a little bit about girls versus boys during this growth spurt. You know, when does the growth spurt happen for girls? Earlier, a little bit earlier. Significantly earlier. You know, 11 and a half. You know, girls start, you know, a lot of girls start their spouting process, 
you know, and, you know, uh, boys don't get that process until, you know, close to two years later, you know, and during that time, a lot of girls are significantly taller and heavier than boys, you know, so, you know, it, it starts um, earlier for girls, um, and when girls go through the growth spurt, what type of tissue do they lay down more of versus boys? I don't know. You're getting too scientific to me for me. Well, this is really important. You know, girls lay down a lot more fat. Boys lay down a lot more muscle. You look at boys going into the growth spurt, they're skinny little things. You know, after they come out of their, the growth spurt, you know, the, the hips and shoulders have widened, you know, but they tend to be very lean coming out of the growth spurt. You know, a lot of girls, they come out of the growth spurt, you know, um, with a greater adipose tissue content. You know, this is one of the proven facts of the growth spurt. You know, and, and so, you know, what we've got to realize is that, that you know, as we go through the growth spurt, girls actually lay down a, a heavier, a less useful backpack of untrained tissue, you know, because, you know, they are going to be, you know, uh, their body competition is more significantly adipose tissue as opposed to muscular tissue. Does that make sense? Yep. You know, so, you know, after the growth spurt, girls have a tougher time um, relative to boys uh, embracing their new body. And this is why the girls game in general is not as skillful as the boys game. You know, because after the growth spurt, it's much harder to perform those skills. It's very rare for a girl to come out of the growth spurt and be anything like the deceptive dribbler that she was prior to the growth spurt because this gets into their head. You know, it, it, everything moves slower, you know, and it, it's not even muscle that they've added. You know, it's adipose tissue. It's fat. You know, so that's just the nature of females versus males. And, you know, as a consequence, it's a bigger mountain to climb for girls. And we need to work girls through this process on deceptive dribbling and goal scoring, you know, to a much greater degree than we actually need to work boys if they're going to come out on the other side and do what Spain did in the World Cup and be able to take people on and use moves and be deceptive under pressure and be a martyr. You know, and I'm not talking about, you know, sacrificing your, your, your body for a greater cause. You know, I'm talking about Marta from Brazil, the Brazilian superstar. You know, you've got to be a martyr. You've got to be brave and creative and go for it and continue to be that player that, that can win in the one-on-one, -on -one, can beat defenders, score great goals. Otherwise, we are consigning the game after the growth spurt for women as a completely different game to the game that's played by the men after the growth spurt. And you only have to look at, you know, the top women's leagues and then compare them to the top men's leagues to see the difference in creativity at the highest level of men's soccer versus creativity at the highest level of women's soccer. It is frightening. If, you, if you're looking for dribbling moves and fakes, explosiveness, the willingness to take players off in, in tight circumstances, there was a fraction of that happening in women's soccer versus men's professional soccer at the highest level. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think a big portion of that is, is cultural, is, you know, the world is still advancing in the women's game and the boys play way more street soccer, not in the US, but you look at the other countries, boys play in the streets, I mean, the, just... The number and street soccer gives you that kind of trying to think of a better term, but that kind of 
I don't care about I don't I don't care attitude like uh, you, you're playing I don't care what happens I just want to do what I want to do you know what I mean the coach says something I don't care about what you're saying I want to do my move I want to do that so street soccer kind of gives that to the players and when you look at the highest level most of the players there are in the top you know if the coach tells them to do oh you need to come here and do this tactical too he this okay all right all right get the ball like Ibrahimovic all the times he's, the things he said you know Cristiano Ronaldo Romario I mean Ronaldo Ronaldinho Messi like all these guys they have the leadership to to go against sometimes even the authority which is in a, a good thing so in in a certain level in a certain stage you know in, in a certain way but anyway so that happens with with boys I think because of street soccer and the girls are still you know have a long way to go in terms of you know the world has a long way to go in terms of girls having the same access of that kind of stuff so girls i think most of the girls that play in the highest level they come through you know a system that they're coached and they they didn't have as much background of street soccer as boys did so it's very important for the coach to give them the confidence to do what's different in the right time even if they're struggling especially when they're struggling so they can get out of that and not put a ceiling in their development because that's that's what i think about all the time when we have these discussions is why do you want to put a ceiling in your development why do you want to just okay i'm gonna get an okay scholarship in college or i might be an okay player in the you know, professional women's league or men's league. Why do you want to put a cap just to make sure you get there? Why do you not try to go all in and try to be the best? Why are you going to limit your development just, you know, to be a little safer? Go for it. Go go with everything. Try to be the most creative. Try to be the most skillful. Try to be different. Try, try to do what nobody else is doing. So you're the best. That way you maximize your chances to success. And even if you fall short, you're still going to probably be better than most of them. So listen very carefully to what I'm going to say next. In traditional coaching philosophy, ages 11 and 12 have been dubbed as the dawning of tactical awareness. This is a quote, and it's scary, from the USYSA website. We believe that players under the age of 12 should play games of 8 versus 8. This will provide a less cluttered and more developmentally appropriate environment. The U12 age group is the dawning of tactical awareness, and we feel it is best to teach the players both individual and group tactics at this age rather than team tactics. For many decades, this attitude has resulted in a conscious lessening of intense, creative technical teaching in favor of group tactical training at 11 or 12 years of age. This happens just as the growth spurt begins, and it's a huge mistake. Where are the crucial emphases on the two most creative and difficult technical skills, which are deceptive dribbling and finishing? Absolutely. And that's our governing body. That's the, the, the governing body that's supposed to be increasing our effectiveness our educator. against Brazil. Yeah. We don't stand a chance. You know, the, the players that are making it as forwards on the national team have to grow up in other cultures in order to make it as forwards on the national teams, you know, or have to be significantly influenced at an early age by other cultures. I'm, I'm, go, I'm just a quick background. Like when I played in, in the academy system in Brazil and I played for Fluminense, you get into the club, 
not when you're U18, when I was, but when they look at the younger ones, the U13s, the U12s, the U10s, all, all of those, first thing they do, they do x-ray of their wrists to see how mature they are in terms of their growth because they don't want to judge the kid that is not having the performance, but that kid is still going to grow, but they have the talent. So they have a whole structure of how do we, they basically treat each kid as individual. So like that kid, they are still going to grow. So we're going to have them practice more specific stuff here. Their training hours are going to be different. They're going to do extra amount of work on this area, this, this and that. And they split everything because they don't want any kid to fall behind. Here, if you're not big, strong and fast, you're done. You don't even have a chance. In Brazil, and that's 10, 12 years ago, now with all the science and all that, and I, I was in touch recently with, with a guy that I know that, that is a big agent in Brazil, and he's saying like the clubs are doing a fantastic job to try to identify those kids that even though they don't seem like they are a, a prodigy at that point because they don't show it, but they recognize the talent and they have all the studies to try to prove that. And they keep that kid around. They develop that kid. They have they develop a different strategy for the kids. For when the kid catch up, then they'll be able to tell: is that kid really good enough? Is that kid really going to be the next thing? So it's keep trying to give the chance for everybody. And here in the U.S., we kind of have you know the divisions. You know, everybody kind of is able to play. So maybe the kid can take a step back and still be challenged. The problem is all the, co the, the so-called good coaches are always in the top team. So the, in theory, the, team, the kids below, they don't get access to the same coaching. They don't get access to the same kind of experience. So they don't have access of the same kind of development opportunities. So they sure. fall behind. Sure, sure, sure. The problem with emphasizing tactics at the beginning of the growth spurt is that it's a miscalculation for the mind and a horrendous error for the rapidly growing body. While the mind is rapidly learning to make mature adult decisions, the body is fast losing coordination, power, speed, and the ability to perform dynamic skills. As the nerve fibers that carry the impulse to the muscle lengthen, the myelin itself starts to stretch and thin out. The thinning of the myelin sheath lessens the insulation of the all-important impulse to accent. This, in turn, weakens the strength and speed of the impulse. At the working muscle, a weaker impulse results in slower action. This is especially true in the growth spurt phase because the working muscle is already struggling to move longer levers and heavier bones. At the onset of the growth spurt, puberty, coaches and parents will recognize a noticeable slowdown in technical skill performance. This occurs because the growing body is increasing its production of new cells and simultaneously experiencing rapid growth in existing cells. Consequently, the athlete is trying to perform very complicated skills while carrying a significant amount of new, untrained nervous and muscle tissue. While this is occurring, the skeleton is also growing rapidly. So the problem is compounded by the need to move much heavier and bigger bones in order to perform each fake or strike the ball. This can be compared to a car with flat tires. The engine, the mind, can have all the needed power, tactical knowledge, in the world, but if the tires are flat, the nerves, muscles, and bones are too large and untrained, the car isn't going anywhere fast. The body can't perform the skills. 
As the growth spurt lays down new connective tissue, the muscles and neurons stretch and become less efficient. Weight has been added to the body's load, but the load is less compact and manageable. The child who just a short time before was an efficient, compact ball of highly trained tissue, you wouldn't recognize this description, Andrew, (laughs) has quickly become a much larger and less compact body of partially untrained tissue. To make things worse, most coaches switch their focus away from deceptive dribbling because U.S. soccer and traditional win-based methods have made them think that the 11- or 12-year-old needs tactical coaching. If the growth spurt is a devastating earthquake to a child's neuromuscular efficiency, the switch to tactics is the damaging tsunami that follows. This double negative usually wreaks irreparable damage on a child's ability to be a great player in the later teen and adult years. And this disease is worse in America than anywhere else in the rest of the world because of the soccer society that we have built. Yeah, for sure. Well, as we wrap up this episode today, guys, um, I, um, I can't help but feel actually a little optimistic um, because... Uh, uh, I, you know, I, I presented the, the, the squishy middle um, section of coaching as a difficult and challenging one. But I think the optimism comes from a place of a recognition that, that when, we, when we do double down and focus in the right areas, setting our kids up for future success, um, they can gain self-confidence, but it also can turn into an advantage for them later in life to have had to, to struggle and fight and, and, um, and, and, and double down on technique um, uh, through that, that squishy, difficult, challenging puberty scenario. And so I think that's what listeners should take away from this, this episode, at least from my perspective. Uh, can I make a finishing statement? Of course. The human body adds an amazing amount of new neuromuscular tissue during the growth spurt. The legends, deceptive dribbling and finishing based system advocates continued training of this tissue so that when maturity is reached, our players are game winners. Legends coaches constantly encourage creative expression at the cost of victories during the growth spurt phase of maturing. Our understanding and treatment of the unique challenges and frustrations of this extensive and crucial psychological and physiological phase has a significant positive effect on the character of the young women and men who play for our club. While Legends players are being encouraged to conquer the new mental and physical challenges inherent within the growth spurt, other youth soccer programs have little or no understanding of the dangers and consequences of this tricky phase in youth development. Consequently, coaches in traditional win-based clubs discourage risky individual play in the short term, resulting in a loss of cutting-edge skill and, perhaps more detrimentally, less inclination to take a leadership role in the long term. During, uh, sorry, due to our high individual expectations, Legends players will reach physical maturity with deceptive dribbling and finishing talents that players on other clubs can only marvel at and envy. In all of life's arenas, superior ability leads to higher personal self-concept. Ultimately, Legends teenagers become braver, more creative leaders for life because our coaches encourage their individual growth instead of focusing on wins at the cost of the player's future. From this example, we should recognize that just when coaches need to redouble their focus on creative individual dribbling and finishing, the U.S. coaching establishment promotes and focuses on the very thing that will forever consign every player and the U.S. men's team, women's team to soccer mediocrity, group tactics. 
The conclusions from the analysis of the growth process in children should be obvious. The serious athlete needs to work significantly harder on creative technique, i.e. deceptive dribbling and innovative shooting. From ages 11 and 12 onwards, than conventional coaching philosophies dictate. In soccer, offensive tactical efficiency is fully dependent on creative technical ability. Because of its cerebral nature, tactical learning can occur at any age. However, advanced technical learning capacity diminishes as the body's tissues mature. And if the new tissue being laid down during growth is not trained while this is occurring, the athlete will not be able to train it to the same degree of expertise at a later stage. Frightening, isn't it? I mean, it's a, it's a window that you've got to hit and you've got to hit it right. It's absolutely frightening that literally virtually the whole youth soccer community is abandoning the most creative skills of the game, the skills that define the greatest players in world history. You know, I'm watching what Leo Messi is doing, you know, with Inter Miami right now. And he's doing unbelievable things because he has the skills. I mean, you look at Sergio Busquets, he walks, he stands but he's so good. If he receives under pressure, he's going to do a crafter. He's going to do a Maradona. He's going to do an Elton. He's going to do something that is going to open up space for him. He literally just stands there. He doesn't have any speed. He doesn't have any athleticism. And Leo look Messi, at the career that the guy had. Leo Messi still has pretty good speed, but a lot of the game he walks. Yeah. But when he gets the ball, he's a genius. Mm. You know, He has the ability to dribble, to beat people, to create goal-scoring opportunities, to make quick passes through traffic, things that we never saw in the whole of the Women's World Cup. To Messi, they're de rigueur. They, you know, they're, this is a habit. This is just the way he's learned to play the game. And it all came from his, his upbringing you know, in, in Argentina and banging that ball against the wall thousands of times and playing small-sided games on the Potrero, you know, again and again and again, day in and day out for hours a day. You know, no limits to the amount of time that Leo Messi spent with the ball when he was a kid. You know, and now he's a worldwide superstar. You know, who's going to be a multi, multi, multi millionaire for life. You know, it's you know, and is worshipped by the vast majority. I literally have never come across a soccer fan that didn't love Leo Messi. You know, he yeah. is worshipped yeah, yeah. by the soccer community yeah. worldwide. Well, um, guys, another great episode. Episode 50 is behind us to 50 more. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks, guys. See ya.